0: Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom
3: worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com
4: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
5: The trial of the NHS nurse Lucy Letby is continuing at Manchester Crown
6: Court.
7: She wept as she told the court that she was devastated at being accused of
6: murdering seven young babies and the attempted murder of 10 others.
7: Asked by her defence lawyer if she'd done anything wrong, no, she replied.
6: She told the jury that she'd only ever done her best to care for the babies.
7: This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations, the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them.
4: Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven newborns and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire.
7: The jury has now been sitting for almost ten months. The prosecution and defence have finished outlining their cases and the jury have been deciding whether Lucy Letby is guilty or not guilty of the 22 charges that she faces.
4: I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I will be in court to report on the
7: case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So Liz, the jury's now been out considering their verdicts for 11 days. Yes, today is their
4: 11th day of deliberations. As we've said before, the judges told them they're under no pressure of time to make a decision. So we've got no idea how long they'll take.
7: So all we can do, as we've said before, is to carry on waiting. Welcome to episode 48, Our Best Guests. As we've told you before in previous episodes, we won't do anything in this podcast to put the integrity of a fair trial at risk, which means while the jury are out deliberating, we can't discuss what's happened at court or recap any of the evidence that we've heard. So this
4: week, we thought we'd do something a bit different. Over the past 47 episodes, we've interviewed some fantastic guests who've given us their fascinating insights into the courts, journalism and media law. And we've put together a compilation of some of our favourite moments, which we hope you enjoy. The first clip we're playing is from back in episode 2, when we spoke to David Banks. He's the former court reporter and media law expert. He explained why sometimes the early reports from a trial in the headlines they generate may sometimes appear biased to the general public. And that's because the prosecution always goes first, so that's all journalists have to report on. The defence case comes along later, once the prosecution have presented their evidence, and it's up to journalists to make sure they report this as well, so we provide balanced and fair coverage to our readers and listeners. Here's what David had to say.
5: The first days of of a trial like this, or any big criminal trial, is all prosecution, and so that's all the media can report, and so the headlines reflect that, and it can seem, that the media might be possibly taking sides or assuming guilt or anything like this. But if you read them carefully, they're always attributing what they're reporting to the prosecution, that this is an allegations being made, this is a prosecution case. And there will be an indication in there that this is a continuing trial. You do get that, that brief opening statement from the Defence counsel, sort of giving an indication of what they might be saying around the, around the evidence. But, you know, the jury and the public watching and listening and reading do have to wait sometimes, some, quite some time, until we get round to the defence case and any defence witnesses they might call and the other evidence that they might they might bring to the court.
7: One of the things um, in this case, David, which maybe you can explain whether this is unusual or not, is that the babies at the centre of these allegations are not going to be named. There are reporting restrictions, quite tight reporting restrictions on this case, aren't there at the moment?
5: The fundamental principle of the courts here in this country is that we have what they call open justice, where everyone gets named the defendant, the witnesses, lawyers, everyone involved in the case is named, and the public gets to see those names and they know who it is. But in some circumstances, the courts can order anonymity. You know, A typical one is that you know, victims of sexual offences are given legal, legal anonymity. It's unusual, though, to have adult witnesses in court granted anonymity but in this case an order has been made doing that because of the view of the court and the, the judge in the case is that that will allow those uh, witnesses that their evidence will be better for the court if they are granted that anonymity but what that means though is that the babies have to be given anonymity as well because if the babies were named then that would lead to the identification of their parents and so it's an unusual situation it's not unheard of but it is quite unusual
4: and David, just tell us about the run-in that I think that you had when you were a younger reporter.
5: It was a case, it was probably very early in my career, it was probably early 90s, I think. One particular piece of evidence that had come out was that the accused the defendant was alleged to have used a power drill in his attempt to dispose of the body of his victim. So I filed my report, and now at the time, this was the sort of late 30s, early 90s, days of sort of, you know, if you want to go and watch a film, you have to that afternoon and i went back to court and so, to my sort of dismay the defense team are on their feet waving a copy of my paper <laughs> the judge complaining about this this headline <laughs> and the judge then at that awful moment turns to the press bench and says "Is the reporter from the evening leader or today and like all the press bench then served straight to me so i can't deny it so i have to i have to confirm that yes i am and the judge says well you better go and Line was was a little bit lurid. The report underneath makes it clear what part the drill played in the evidence, and he said. Furthermore, he said the jury have heard themselves what part the drill was meant to have played in the evidence, so that they would they wouldn't be unduly influenced by this headline. So big sigh of relief for myself the editor probably no doubt happy not to have to come to
4: court about that and i think that's the key for any reporter isn't it that if you're writing a sentence and then you think oh this might be sensationalizing it slightly you have to think what have the jury heard and have the jury heard that and that's the way you temper your reports all the
7: time that's my first rule The next clip is really one of my favourites. We enjoyed talking to Julia Quensler so much back in episode six that we released a longer version of our chat with her as a special bonus episode. Julia is one of the best and most well-known court artists in the UK. So we were really pleased when she took some time away from her pastels to speak to us. Here's the clip.
8: It's contempt of court in this country to sketch in court. It's a law that's stood since 1925. The same Contempt of Court Act, which says you cannot take a photograph in court, says you can't sketch in court. And it stood almost 100 years now. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, they did allow sketching and photography in court. So it's a combination of memorizing and written notes because I, I don't want to keep my head down writing. I like to, you know, look at the person or people that I'm drawing. It's important to not only get hopefully a, a good resemblance, but also body language, demeanor, all of that adds to it. So what do you write down? If it's someone I've never seen before, obviously I'm I'm writing down features, hair, clothing etc but also I'm looking for the expression on the face etc etc at one time 13 people entered the dock one long long line of defendants oh. and uh and this that's, they a, came that's in. called a
4: multi-multi-hander I think <laughs> like, they came
8: in they filed in at about ten thirty, and uh, I had to have the drawing ready in time for the one o'clock news so that one was a real challenge
1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
4: As well as featuring evidence from the trial, we've also spoken a lot on the podcast about how important court reporting is, especially for the pursuit of open justice. And no one is a bigger advocate of that than Tim Crook, a media law expert and professor of journalism at Goldsmiths University in London. In episode seven, he told us all about how he started his career as a court reporter at the most famous court in the land, at the Old Bailey in London.
2: Well, it was the first major specialist job I had in journalism. In 1981, BBC Radio Scotland commissioned me to report every day of a spectacular and fascinating trial of an Oxford graduate with a working-class background called Howard Mark, who specialised in smuggling cannabis into the United Kingdom, although clearly he was going to deny this. And at the end of it, he was acquitted. He uh, was the kingpin, bringing in over 20 million pounds of marijuana. Customs and excise interrupted the whole operation. Cannabis started washing ashore in the Western Isles. Poultry farmers used it as bedding for their chickens and the hens <laughs> began to behave very strangely. Oh my god that's <laughs> I was hooked day by day. First time I'd had the chance to report every minute of a trial. The chance to be in a courtroom and, and witness the drama was extraordinary and I was completely drawn into it and committed. And I was enormously lucky because IRNLBC knew that I was there and they asked if I could file for them because I was only broadcasting to Scotland. And I said yes. And then when that trial finished, LBC asked me to be their full-time Old Bailey Central Criminal Court correspondent and, and also cover the Royal Courts of Justice and anything else legal right. And I said yes, and for sixteen years that was my life. So it's
4: arguably the best court in the land, the Old Bailey, isn't it? It's often where the most serious cases go.
2: Absolutely, and it's remained so. And uh, I had the the privilege to uh, report the most important cases, particularly terrorism. I mean, late seventies, eighties, early nineties—terrible terrorist crimes on the mainland as well as what was going on in Northern Ireland—and then I would be there covering the trials of people responsible including Patrick McGee who nearly succeeded in destroying Margaret Thatcher and the entire British cabinet with the Grand Hotel Brighton bombing in 1984
4: And is there still an interest in like young reporters for being court reporters?
2: Absolutely. When they have the chance to be in court and cover significant trials, they realize the importance They experience the drama and the intensity. One of the difficulties is that the industry is under a huge amount of pressure, has been for 20, 30 years, and there isn't the economy to support the number of specialist court reporters.
4: Nowadays, news desks want reporters not just to file one story a day, and... The problem with being a court reporter is you've got to listen really to all the evidence over the full day to take and make an accurate report of what's going on. In that sense, it's kind of an investment. It's it's an expensive skill.
2: It's an expensive skill, and it's a quite brilliant, demanding skill. It's a skill where there is no right to fail. And what you're doing with your podcast, what well, is unique and groundbreaking, and all credit to you, historical and vitally important.
7: Now, the next clip is from part two of our chat with experienced broadcaster Matt O'Donoghue. We've chosen it because it was really relevant at the time to what we were faced with when we started the podcast. And that was the difficulty of reporting on a really long running trial. Matt spoke to us about his experience of reporting on some really serious court cases back in episode eight.
6: The really difficult thing to do over a, a trial, particularly one like this, which is so expansive and that goes on for months. I mean, this is, what is it? Something like a six-month trial. I was thinking about what other cases I'd done that had gone on that long. And I I did, I think, every day of a nine-month trial in Liverpool for, it was Joyce and Amos, the two gangsters who ran the Gooch crew in Manchester, who were up for a murder. I mean, it was horrific. It was Tyrone Gilbert's wake, who was a victim of gang violence, who'd been shot. And then at that wake, people were out on the street drinking and they drove by and they shot at all the mourners and took another one out. And it was a massive trial. It went on for nine months. There were, I think, 10 co-accused. The dock was full. And every day you're thinking, how can I maintain the interest in this? You're fighting against everything else that's on the agenda that day. And you want your story to be on because you're personally invested in it and you think it's important. Otherwise, you wouldn't have pitched to have been assigned to it in the first place.
7: Any big court cases that spring to mind?
6: Oh, God, there are loads that have really stuck with me. Yeah. Charlene Downs. That case is one that has and always will stick with me, not least because her parents I got to know particularly well. And they would call me up after their day in court and we would chat through stuff. The backdrop of it is a young girl who went missing in Blackpool and was never seen again. And the accused were two guys who ran a kebab shop opposite the drag club in Blackpool called Funny Girls. The contention from the prosecution was that Charlene had been murdered. She'd been groomed. She was part of a grooming network of uh, men who then used her, and then something had happened. She'd been chopped up, and basically, the people who went for their kebabs on a Saturday night was the prosecution's contention, had consumed Charlene without knowing it. And the details of that case were horrific. If you do this job properly, you empathize. And that's the only way that you can do it properly. Otherwise, you become an automaton and your copy has no soul and your broadcasts have no heart.
4: In episode 11, we spoke to another seasoned court reporter, John Harris. He runs the main news agency in Manchester called Cavendish Press. And he's spent his entire career reporting on the goings on in courtrooms across the northwest of England. He shared some of his favourite stories and told us why his career in the courts has earned him the nickname Mr Justice Harris.
3: My name's John Harris and I'm uh, the principal at Cavendish Press which is a a news agency which sources stories and pictures for various newspapers, websites, magazines etc. The reason for the Mr Justice nickname is because (laughs) for many, many years our agency has covered primarily court cases, tribunals and inquests.
7: And a lot of our podcast so far in the guests that we've had on has
3: talked about
7: why court cases now are maybe not covered as much as they used to be, but maybe that's not true. Maybe you're in there all the time with your teams and covering everything.
3: It is true that many, many, in particular magistrates' courts and uh, smaller crown courts were traditionally covered by solo freelancers, and they would cover cases for the local papers. They'd be on what's called retainer agreements where they get flat fees every month and that would be for the local papers unfortunately the retainer agreements were scrapped sort of in the late nineties, early noughties which has since made it difficult for freelancers to exist in the courts I mean we still do the courts because we supply pictures as well which does help when it comes to covering courts worthwhile but sadly those who don't do pictures will struggle and inevitably many freelancers have either retired or just given up because we're living on fees which were agreed in the 1980s.
4: But you still every day have someone, don't you, at a magistrate's court yes. or yeah. a, a number of magistrate's court across the northwest? Yes. And you do get some great stories yes. every day well, from them.
3: Well, when I first started out 30-odd years ago, my first boss always told me that the best stories are always in the magistrate's courts, And the reason for that is... A lot of it just reflects real life. These are incidents which people relate to. The offbeat, the quirky, sometimes the very, very funny. Mm-hmm. You will get black comedy cases at the magistrates' court, which you might not necessarily get at the Crown Court. They're great courts mm-hmm. to cover.
7: When you're sending to those, are you sending with a specific story in mind because yes. you've seen something on the list? You're not yes. sending speculative. No.
3: It's always about targeting particular cases which I think are going to be interesting. There's one this morning that we're having a look at about uh, an 83-year-old man who's up for harassment and criminal damage to a neighbour's adjoining wall. So um, it's potentially quite interesting. He's 83, very unusual for an 83-year-old man to be before the court. He's accused of climbing over a fence and shouting (laughs) abuse at his next-door neighbour.
7: Tell us, I don't know, best magistrate's court story.
3: It is still one from about 30 years ago. I was covering another case and I had to go and do a door knock on it. And what happened was that um, I went for a pint at this particular person's local pub afterwards. And Keeping um, up those journalist traditions. Yes, editions, that's right. yeah. yes yeah. absolutely. Glad to hear that. It was a lovely little pub in Drax, near Selby it was. It was a a real country pub, everybody in there. The landlord asked us who we were and said who we were and what we were there for. And he says, oh, you don't need to worry about that load of rubbish. Why don't you come to our court case? And, I was, and obviously I think, thinking, yeah, right, okay, here we go. It was in the days of strict licensing laws. And the landlord was up for um, serving people after hours. What was interesting about it was that um, the police sent in three undercover officers to expose this thing. But what was more interesting was that all three officers got absolutely sloshed during this investigation. <laughs> one of whom was so drunk that he actually fell over whilst trying to, in effect, arrest this uh, landlord. <laughs> And um, uh, and obviously we went to cover this case. All the officers gave evidence, and they all had to admit drinking between five and eight pints of Old Bailey beer. Which is what they, they were serving Old Bailey, which is a very strong oh, brilliant. beer. Brilliant. The, fa- the famous headline in the Daily Mail being uh, "Passing Out Parade." Yeah, that was the. <laughs> that was without doubt my favourite.
7: That's it for episode 48. We hope you enjoy just some of those brilliant guest moments. Liz and I will be at court until the jury's decision is made and they announce their
4: verdicts. We've no idea how long that'll take, but we'll bring it to you as soon as it happens.
7: You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby.com at gmail.com See you then.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.